My family had an excellent Thanksgiving with a lot of friends and family. Uh, you, you really can't, when you think about the nature of our schedule, blame us all the time for the way things tend to come together. Uh, I know that sometimes it seems like we're really thinking like next level creativity in the way that we bring things together, but we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and this morning we were talking about what's wrong with the world. Uh, so I uh, don't know if this is necessarily in line with Thanksgiving, but uh, hopefully it does end up that way as we think about the nature of what God's done. You know, any world religion, any philosophical system that has any merit at all has to deal with the question of what is wrong with the world. Now, what seems to be in common with every worldview that you come across is that there is indeed something wrong with the world. But the answers are different. So for instance, if you were to go and read Karl Marx, and I'm going to be simplifying a lot of stuff here, but uh, he would tell you that one of the problems that humanity really has, the main problem, is the possession of property and unequal pay. And if we were just to take away ownership of property and give everybody the same pay, then people wouldn't fight so much. Uh, there are others who have had different answers, like Sigmund Freud, who said that uh, really at the end of the day, there is uh, a sexuality that is intrinsic to who our identity is as humans, and that is what causes most of our problems, our, our engagement with that, our uh, receiving the fulfillment of what we pursue, our happy in that, or our misery in that. Uh, that is really what is wrong with the world. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, that famous atheist, uh, actually recently said that what's wrong with the world is religion. Uh, religion comes back and says, no, the answer to what's wrong with the world is religion. Uh, so there have been many different, uh, many different answers. In fact, if you've ever followed an extremist group, they have said the problem that we really have ultimately is what? Them. They're the problem. Who? Anybody but us. If you've followed uh, recently uh, the nature of the way that the news talks about education, it almost seems to give you the impression that if humanity were just to be more educated, people wouldn't do so much bad stuff. More recently, critical race theorists, and, and this isn't just like a homogenous group, but uh, many of them would say that the problem that we have with humanity is an unequal distribution of power. Some people have more, some people have less, people abuse power. What we need is actually a redistribution of power, and if we were just to do that, then we would have less animosity in the world. I don't know that that's happening. And you probably have heard the story of how in the early 1900s, the Times of London were already asking the same question of their generation, and they actually asked some of the uh, most famous thinkers of the day to respond to this question, what's wrong with the world today? And famed author G.K. Chesterton replied with really one sentence, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now Chesterton's answer reflects, I believe, what is a, a witty, humble, biblical view of what is wrong with the world whether he said it or not. It sounds so much like the Apostle Paul in our text in Romans 3, 19 to 20 this morning. See, Paul sent this letter to the church in Rome, and it was in part due to his desire to set them straight on what his understanding of the gospel according to God truly was. It seems that some had misunderstandings about what he was teaching. They might have been slandering him in some ways as we have seen in the past. 
But he wants to declare the gospel of God, which centers on God's saving righteousness in verses 1, 16 to 17. But as we've been going through his letters so far, if you've been listening closely, you've noticed that it sounded a lot more like bad news than good news. It's been a lot about what's wrong with humanity. In chapter 1, talking about how all Gentiles are under the wrath of God. And then he moves into chapter 2, and he doesn't slow up. He begins to focus on how all Jews are guilty before God of breaking the law, the Mosaic law. They are lawbreakers. And he has argued forcefully that they too will be no better before the impartial just judge on the last day when he visits us with his just wrath. Now, Christianity would say even the deep philosophical grapplings with what's wrong with this world need to go deeper still than those surface answers that we see everywhere. See, humanity, our big problem is that we have what Paul is going to show today is a sin nature. We are a people who have a sin nature. Paul brings the bad news home today, declaring that every human is a sinner who deserves God's wrath. Now, our big idea is this. And I put it this way just because I don't want you just to like hide under your pews the whole time. Uh, but it's this, it's that everyone is a sinner, so everyone needs Jesus. So I want you to know we're going to get to some hope, but we need, before we get to uh, the, the anecdote of our problem, to first diagnose what really ails us. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now the first thing we find in verse 9 is this, every human being is under sin. They're under it. Now, do you remember how Paul has just held and communicated to us that the Jews held a massive advantage over the Gentiles in that God had entrusted them with his very oracles, his words. He has given them his crystallized speech in Romans 3.1 above. Now, that has led some who are reading our verse this morning, verse 9, to say that Paul seems to contradict himself. Uh, see what they mean when he says this. He says in verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? thought he just answered that. And he goes on to say, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. So, which is it? Do Jews have an advantage? verse 1, or not here in verse 9. Well, I really found John Calvin's commentary extremely helpful here. In it, he is speaking of verse 1, and he says that that speaks of, of external benefits, while verse 9 is speaking of internal benefits. He's talking about two different things. So he goes on to write, there is no disagreement for those privileges in which he admitted their preeminence were external to themselves and dependent on the goodness of God and not of their own merit. In other words, when he's talking about their benefits and their advantages, those are those things that are actually not inside of them, but external to them, given to them by God. But in verse 9, Paul is asking another question. He inquires whether they had any worthiness in which they could glory in themselves before God? Do they have an advantage based on something internal in them? Now here's why I think this matters. Externally, Jews held the greatest privileges before God 
above every other people. They had the Mosaic Covenant and the law along with circumcision and the promises. But every external benefit wasn't enough to transform their hearts and gain them an advantage before God on the last day. None of it was enough. And Paul highlights the advantage of the Jews to expose the perilous nature of the human condition, awaiting God's judgment, all of humanity. You know, if the Jewish advantage leaves them hopeless, everyone's doomed. And just to give you an illustration, if you want to go to a restaurant and someone tells you Warren Buffett can't afford it, you probably can't either. If you want to go swimming and you want to sort of keep up with the Navy SEALs training and they say, here's an exercise that no Navy SEAL has ever accomplished, then you say, I'm probably not going to be able to do it even if I wanted to. But Paul here clarifies the problem with an interesting phrase. He says both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, if you ask Paul what is wrong with the world, he'd say this, all of humanity is under sin. That's the problem. Now, take note of a couple of things here. First, notice that humanity is under sin, with an emphasis on under. Now, prepositions matter. If I tell you this morning that my friend, one of our elders, Harry, is on top of my car. You might giggle a little bit, like, why is he on your car? If I tell you Harry is under my car, we're going to have problems. Paul is not going to like that. If humanity is on top of sin, we might say that we've got sin under control. If we say that our sin is behind us, we might think, well, that means that my sin has passed. If I say that sin is outside of me, it means that my biggest sin problems are external to me. But if I say that all of humanity is under sin, that speaks of control, authority, and power. All of this which sin has over humanity at large. The realm of the reign of sin is over everyone. Also, not just, I don't want you just to focus on under, but also notice that he uses the word sin as a singular noun. Now, Paul spoke of those who sinned in 2.12. That's an, an action, a verb that speaks of an individual uh, action that breaks God's law. You'll remember that he spoke of a sinner who is a person who has sinned in verse uh, 3, 7, just above. But here, Paul does not say that all of humanity is under their many collective sins. And there are many innumerable sins that we could say that humanity is under. But instead, he says all of humanity is under sin singular. See, sins in the plural speaks of moral actions that violate God's law, sinful acts. But sin in the singular means something different. Now, I looked this up in the New International Dictionary of the New Testament, and there it explains that Paul almost always uses this word for sin in the singular, and sin is almost a personal power which acts in and through man. This vivid way of putting things contributed along with Paul's statement on the universality of sin since Adam in Romans 5, it'll be discussed, to the church's doctrine of original sin. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to Romans 5, but original sin, it, it doesn't merely mean that first sin that Adam committed. 
Now, original sin actually historically is a doctrine that speaks of the fact that every human after Adam inherited his sin nature. Now, this sin nature explains while every human commits sinful actions. We commit sinful actions because we, could, we inherited a sin nature. So when Paul says we are under sin, he's speaking to the fact that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. Now, you've heard me use this quote many times. I, I don't know if it's from R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer or who. Everybody says it. But we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. See, God created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But left to ourselves, we miss the mark both of God's glory and our joy all over the place. We know that no one, I mean, or rather that everyone is under sin because everyone dies, which is a consequence of sin. We, we disobey God. We miss the mark constantly. Left to ourselves, we cannot hit the mark because we are under sin pervasively. Now, I think that's why Paul goes on to quote the verses that he quotes in verses 10 to 18, which really, I'm guessing that as they were being read, left you feeling worse and worse. Because notice, second, that Paul develops an Old Testament portrait of humanity under sin. This is a picture of what I believe is total depravity. So notice in verses 10 to 18, we have the longest quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in this quote, what we find is, is that Paul has actually strung together, like beads on a necklace, psalms, and, and one quote, it seems like, from Isaiah, to express what all of humanity under sin looks like. He's like, here's what it means if you're looking for a real vivid picture. Now, when we read these verses, when we read them early in, in the service, I am guessing that you felt the weight of humanity under sin growing heavier with each verse. And the gravity of despair likely increased proportionally in some way. Now, what's fascinating is that the context of each of these texts speaks of the wicked or unrighteous people in the Old Testament as distinct from the writer and the, right, the righteous Israelites who are recording them. But in these verses, what we find is, is that Paul is actually lumping all Jews together with the wicked. As Doug Moo explains, in, in light of Christ, all Jews must now be considered to be in the category of the wicked. There is one category in humanity, and that is of those who are unrighteous. So catch this. We need to make sure that we understand the bad news before we're ready to receive the good news of God's saving righteousness. So let's just take a, a brief look at the human condition with these four descriptions that he gives us here. And these, I believe, together give us an understanding of what total depravity looks like. So notice first in verses 10 to 12, he says, not even one human is righteous or seeks God. Not even one human is righteous or seeks God. Now, I can't help as I read these verses but remember 
Abraham in that scene. You'll remember in Genesis 7 or Genesis 18 where uh, he is about to come to Sodom and Gomorrah and bring his wrath and Abraham begs for uh, God to spare them. And he says, God, what if we find even 50, 30, 20, 10 who are righteous? Would you spare them? And yet here in this scene, what we find is the city and the zip code has grown to fill the whole earth. And he says, almost as if you could find even one righteous in all of the earth, would you show mercy? And yet what we find here is a horrible declaration, is that as the just judge is looking down, he can't even find one who is righteous. So notice here in these verses, as Paul is quoting from Psalm 14, 1 to 2, in a kind of abbreviated way, and then verse 3, he, he says this in Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, these verses highlight the universal nature of sin's power. God looks down on humanity and he declares that there is none that is righteous. In fact, Paul repeats there is none six different times in these three verses. Now, just in case you're not good with math, Paul clears things up at the end and he says, not even one. Just in case you didn't get No one, zero, not even one, he clarifies, there is none that is righteous in humanity. Sin is a word that speaks of missing the target, kind of like an archer who is shooting an arrow, and he misses that target that he's shooting for. And you'll notice in these verses, as you look here, and then at the end in verse 18, that the, the nexus of the issue is that No one seeks after God or aims after his glory post-fall. That's the grand issue from which all of the other problems arise. Humanity fails to give God the glory and the honor and the praise that is due his name. As we look at this, it's, it's fascinating because... This really is a picture of the way that humanity has done what D.A. Carson calls the degoding of God, which in a sense we find here also results in the demanding of man. In other words, we were created to glorify God, to image him. But when we turn from glorifying God as God, honoring God as God, giving him thanks and gratitude and praise that is due his name, What that does is, is that turns us inward on ourselves. We fail to reflect God as we should, and we start to reflect lesser things, created things rather than the creator God. And we no longer are as human as God created us in the garden to be, as those who image and liken God. And so as we sin, we become less of the humanity that God created us to be. God created us to reflect his image, the image of that which we worship Uh, He wants us to image to the world around us. And our glory is tied directly to that which we worship. And not giving God the worship we do Him as as creator and redeemer, Paul says this, every human has turned aside or away from God. 
and he has sought autonomy from God to find his own way rather than God's way. And as a result, humanity, catch what Paul says, quoting Psalms, he has become worthless or corrupt. I looked that word up for worthless in a Greek dictionary, and it says worthless is becoming a liability to society because of moral depravity. It's to become depraved. No human does good according to Paul. Now, at this point, I'm not sure how that strikes you. Maybe you think to yourself, I don't know. I, I think, left to myself, I'm, I'm not that bad. And I've known some pretty good people that are not Christians. So aren't there those who, like, might be a pagan living in a remote island who has never heard the gospel, and yet, isn't this bad? Or what about a good Jew who really tried hard to keep the law apart from Christ? I mean, is this really a portrait of that person too? And what about me? I like to think I'm a nice guy. I take showers, I brush my teeth. I put a little money in the offering every once in a while. I hand money out at the corner whenever somebody's in need. I'm not, I'm not this bad, right? Well, Paul says, if you're asking that of yourself, what part of none did you not understand? There is none, 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 none that does righteousness, that seeks after God, that does good. There is none. I mean, this really sums up what Paul's been arguing from Romans 1 to 2, that no one is not under sin, which means everyone is under sin. No one has kept God's law. Again, G.K. Chesterton has a, a famous quip here where he says, certain theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of the Christian theology which can really be proved. Because we see it all around us. We don't have to run to look for the fact that there is a problem with humanity. Even our philosophies agree something's wrong. The answer is sin. But notice also in verses 13 to 14, Paul says, there is a power of sin over the soul. Now he's quoting a number of verses here from Psalms, Psalm 5-9, Psalm 143, 140 verse 3, and Psalm 10 verse 7. And here's what he says in verses 13 to 14. Paul says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, the throat is an open grave could mean a couple of different things. It, it could speak of the result of speech leading to the death of others, causing destruction. Or it could speak of sinful speech that carries the stench of death. Now, that is a stinky image for the nature of speech and the way that it looks in the mouth of a fallen humanity. He speaks of the deceit of the tongue, which in Psalm 5-9 seems to speak of a, a smooth, kind of slick, flattering speech that appears good or righteous maybe on the surface, but there is a motive underneath that is self-seeking that is not intended to bring about righteous 
purposes. Humanity also looks like asps or snakes with poisonous venom. It's a similar image that we find in James 3.8 where he says that our tongues are full of deadly poison. I mean, their words spread death to others in cunning ways. And then in verse 14, he speaks of the whole mouth of every human being being full of curses and bitterness rather than blessing and sweetness. Now, as we went through those really quickly, did you catch that Paul uses a number of words for the mouth? He he talks about the throat and and the, the tongue and the lips and the whole mouth to show the totality of human speech as being under the power of sin to bring about death, not life. It is a comprehensive picture of the nature of humanity. And if you think about this in light of Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, that gives us a really clear picture of the nature of the problem facing humanity. You know, our mouths, our speech, apart from Christ, left to ourselves, is full of cursing, cussing, lying, slandering, grumbling, gossiping, and majoring in frivolity, talking about things that don't matter much rather than the glorious things that God has done to the fame of his name. See, God created us to worship him and bless others with our mouths, but our mouths, they are a window into our soul showing that we are far from God. We do not speak or think or meditate or hope in those things which give a picture of someone who is living before the sight of God. What does your soul, your mouth say about your soul? Does it say that you are a God-seeker. Reading Tom Schreiner this week on this text, he says, the more universal dimension of sin is nowhere more evident than human speech. My hope is, is that for those of us who are in Christ, that it is nowhere more evident that we are different than others than in our speech, in our actions. And that's where he turns next. Notice the power of sin since humanity running to sin against society in verses 15 to 17. So now he's talking about actions. And in verses 15 to 17, he's quoting Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. And he says this, look there with me. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. If you've read through Genesis, you saw the fall in Genesis 3 and then you notice that things seem to get really bad, really quick in chapters 4 to 11. I mean, in chapters 4, you immediately have Cain kill his brother Abel. That's what sin does. It, it turns people in hostility against one another with murderous thoughts and intentions. And then in Genesis 6-5, God looks down on, humidi- on humanity in the days of Noah. And we are told that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Just think about that. Like God leaving humanity to themselves, things just get worse and worse and there is no safety. There's no stopgap to slow down. There's no speed bump to stop 
They're plunging into sin. I mean, these verses, what they're doing is they're really highlighting the reality that not only is there a vertical dimension to our broken relationship with God, but it has horizontal societal implications. If you want to know what's wrong around you, it begins with what's wrong with our relationship with God. When there is no God in our eyes, we will not t- treat other people as though they have human dignity as those created by the living God. See, humans leave the destruction and misery of others in their wake in these verses, inflicting injury and sorrow on other humans. Now, the fact that they have not known the way of peace speaks to the fact that humanity is always at war with one another. Sin leads to death, and humanity under the power of sin becomes an instrument of death, not life. We are hurrying the consequences of the curse of sin and the fact that we're bringing death on ourselves. But notice finally that he says the power of sin to blind humanity to our just judge. There's a power of sin to blind humanity to our just judge. That's what he says in verse 18. Now here he's quoting from Psalm 36.1, and he says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I, I remember when I was reading through this earlier this week, just constantly having this, this picture of the days of the judges in my mind, and how there's a cycle where things just get worse and worse. People in Israel, they're supposed to image their holy God. They're supposed to be holy as he is holy. But they more and more look like Canaan. They more and more look like the world. Things get worse and worse. And the book ends with this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that wasn't good for anyone. It wasn't good for their wives, for their daughters, for their brothers. They turned in on themselves and against one another. See, when we lose sight of the inescapable, all-seeing gaze of God as our just judge, humanity creates truth and morality for itself, and it always ends in death. It is always corrupt and wicked. The power of sin makes us dumb, blind, and dangerous, both to ourselves and to others. We lose sight of God and God's law and morality. We begin to believe that we can find good apart from God. He's the only source of good. And this is the state of natural man. In fact, the Russian poet Turgenev once said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Let me ask you a question. Again, what does your heart do when you hear that every single human fails to meet God's righteous standards? That humanity is corrupt? That their, their speech, as Paul says, it, it reeks of death. Their feet run to death and sorrow of others. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. I, I'm guessing that maybe you're thinking, am I really that bad? left to myself. Am I not the one? There is no one. Or maybe you're thinking, Paul's just a pessimist. I, I really prefer more optimistic people. Well, the fall has left humanity in a state that theologians refer to as total depravity. Now, many misunderstand total here and total depravity to mean that humanity is as bad as they possibly could be. And that, that's not what that means. Uh, in fact, R.C. Sproul has a, a great explanation where he talks about the difference between utter depravity and total depravity. 
Utter depravity would be that like we're all just as bad as we ever could be. And he says that's not what total depravity means. It means something different. In fact, God's restraining grace keeps all of us from being as bad as we could be. Those who are Christians, those who are not, there's a restraining grace that keeps humanity from being what they truly would be apart from him. I mean, even Adolf Hitler, who most people would agree, like a moral monster, loved art, loved to create pictures of trees and flowers. He even has a picture of Mary with baby Jesus. And yet, what we know is, is that there have been few men that have been more reprehensible in creation than, than this man. But total depravity, it's not speaking of the sense that we are all Hitler. It's, it's talking about something different. Total depravity speaks instead of the effect of the fall on the whole person. In other words, when Adam fell, it affected every part of us. There is not a part of us that was not in some sense tainted by the fall of sin. Think about it. Our bodies, they were not meant to die, and yet now we die. Our bodies are constantly falling apart. I'm reminded of that every time I go to the gym. Doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. Doesn't work the way it used to. Things tend to go down. It's true of our minds. You remember that the psalmist said, no one understands. We don't think right. We don't understand right. Why? Because even our minds have been affected by the nature of the fall. And it's not just that. It's even hit to the very heart of who we are in our desires. We don't desire good even though it is best for us. We can't distinguish truth from a lie. We don't default to trusting God anymore. We actually default to not trusting God. And think about this. It makes it very difficult to live a godly life when every part of you has been affected by the fall in that way such that we are inclined against God rather than for God. So that even the best things that God has done for us, even those good things, we turn and use them for evil rather than good. Now, Paul's going to hit this later, but even in Christ, even with the Holy Spirit sealing us as believers, those of us who are in Christ, we still know that the flesh can feel like our, it's making our hearts prone to wander. Do you feel that? Like that, that is something that happens even in the believer. So total depravity doesn't mean that every part of the human has been corrupted by the power of sin. It means that every single part of the human has been corrupted and influenced by its power and dominion. Third, the law does not justify, it reveals sin. Here's where Paul has been working towards. He is going to show us that the law does not justify, it reveals sin in verses 19 to 20. Now, verses 19 to 20 really are concluding that whole section, that first section of Romans that began in Romans 1.18. And here we find the imagery of a courtroom trial where Jews are defending themselves against the charge of breaking the law of the Mosaic Covenant, and they are coming before God on the last day to give an account. They are defendants in this case. And in verse 19, Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That now we know in verse 19 is signaling to us that Paul is saying something that he assumes that all of the Jews who are listening will agree with. 
The idea that every mouth will be stopped. Now, this, this every mouth being stopped is actually courtroom kind of language as well. It, it describes a defendant who is on trial, who has exhausted his defense with no other available appeals to refute the charges and to avert his condemnation. He is done. He knows that all that awaits is the sentence, the condemnation, and the punishment. But here's the question. Paul says, you'll notice, the law speaks to those under the law. He's talking about Jews being judged by the law. So that, for the the purpose of silencing every mouth and holding the whole world accountable. What does Jewish guilt have to do with the the whole world? I think this is shocking, this statement. And I believe what Paul is doing here is a couple of things. First, First, he's saying the Jews, with all their external benefits, don't please God. It's not enough on the last day. So he's letting the Jews know they have no advantage on the last day over anyone else. But as you have Gentiles, Greeks, who are listening in, he is also saying something else to them. And there's a second point. It is to help everyone who is listening see just how desperate a spot all of humanity is in. I mean, if the Jews have all of these benefits and they have no hope on the last day in and of themselves then what hope do we have? Verse 20 explains the purpose of the law in in all of this. And he says this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now here's the point. The the law was given so that Jews could be justified through works of... uh, The law was not given so that Jews could be justified through works of the law. The law was given to reveal sin. Now, the law was never given, so to say, to serve as a defense attorney, to protect the innocent or remove the guilt of the guilty. It wasn't meant to be this thing that you appealed to before a just God to say, I broke this, that, and the other, but look at all these places where I won on this day and that day. That's not the point of the law. The law was never intended to clean up dirty, corrupt people like soap. It wasn't meant to make stinky, dirty people clean. It wasn't meant to be like breath scope for people whose mouths smell like death. Now, the law in this picture works more like a mirror than soap or defense attorney. It's a mirror that shows fallen humanity how far they've fallen. To put it another way, colonoscopies don't heal colon cancer. Y'all know that, right? No, they, they diagnose it. And the law doesn't cure sinful humanity. It diagnoses it. So who needs the good news of God's saving righteousness according to God? Every single human being. Why do we need God's saving righteousness? Because every single human being is under the power of sin and death 
and deserves God's just wrath on the last day. Now let me close with some applications. Because I don't want to leave you just with the bad news. I want to talk about the gospel a little bit here. Here's the first one. It's this. Christian brothers and sisters, this should stir up in us an incredible amount of humility. I mean, what, what was your response to Paul's description of humanity? Yeah, man, I, I think I know some people like that. Paul's point is, you were some people like that. Maybe you're thinking, no, not me, I'm not that bad. But even in Christ, our hearts can cause us to kind of poke our chest out and say, look at me. But in Mark 2.17, just remember this, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're better than this, then you're not the kind of person that Jesus came for. But if this is you and you're willing to own that you are part of a sinful, totally depraved humanity, you're exactly the kind of person that God came for. It's the only kind of person there is. God did not send his son to save good people. He came to save a corrupt humanity. God did not come to resuscitate people who were spiritually dying, but to raise the spiritually dead. He did not send his son because he would be less glorious without our praise forevermore. God sent his son because he loves even his enemies, stinky enemies. I don't know about you, I got like a gag reflux. I can't even pick up like dog poop in the backyard without like dry heaving. I can't imagine what it was like for an impeccably holy God to stoop down and smell my death-ridden breath and choose to save me. We have such a good God. God, we're not good. God is. We're not merciful. God is. God sought a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation who did not seek him. And even a people who despite all of their advantages and blessings, abandoned him. God rescued a corrupt people who hated God and loved sin. And I think remembering this should humble us. It should humble us when our Kids sin against us again and again. I got, I got great kids. When your kids sin against you again and again, and we think we deserve better because we're better parents, and we treat them and think about how we care for them, think about how God cared for you. Be humbled. And when your spouse doesn't show you the respect that you deserve because you work so many hours and you make so much money and you're always caring for the family and you sacrifice all your joy to spend time with them all the time. Nothing better than spending time with family. We need to be humbled that God did not treat us as we deserved, but stooped down to love us. 
That humility is invaluable when we need to share the gospel with someone who isn't like us or doesn't treat us well. We need to be reminded of the God who seeks sinners who hate him. That humility will help us fight sin, valuing God's will above our own sinful desires, trusting God more than we trust our own guilty hearts that love sin, if not for a radical, amazing work of grace by God. Not only should it work humility in us individually, I hope that as a church this has implications for us. Trinity Bible Church, I think that we should be the happiest place on earth. Why? Well, because we know that we do not put our hope in man, in institutions, in structures, in our own selves, but in the God who saves sinners. I mean, our only hope is a God who gives good news to the guilty. Well, the other day, John was uh, playing with his little sister, Mia. And he said something like, she's always so happy, and that's just a blessing to have a happy little girl. I hope it's always so. And he said, you think it's because all of her needs are met that she's so happy? And we said, yeah, I mean, I think some of it's disposition, but I think, I think that's kind of true. She's just so happy because all of her needs are met. As long as she gets plenty of sleep, FaceTime, milk, playtime, she's kind of happy. She doesn't get those things, she's not so happy. But there's a sense in which her knowing that her needs are met brings about joy. And isn't that really true of all of us? When we really know deep down in our souls that our deep needs have been met, we really trust and believe and cling to that and rejoice in that, it makes us happy. We're not angry because we have accidentally put our ultimate hope in politics or a politician or education or money or sexual pleasure or vaccines or anything else but God who rescues guilty sinners from themselves and his just wrath. So many times we are not happy as we ought to be, and it shows a subtle way in which we have in some way trusted something, someone else, with our joy rather than seeing the true goodness that God has given to us in Christ. When we are sad, we have lost sight of Jesus. Praise God that Jesus never loses sight of us. Our greatest needs have been met so that we can rejoice in times of plenty and in times of want. You know, the inmate who's released moments before his execution doesn't complain about what was going to be his last meal. No, everything after that, every meal after that is a blessing and a gift of God. Finally, for those of you who are here that are not Christians, I hate to ruin the ending of a good story, but I, I don't want to leave you without knowing that the Bible says that you, along with all of humanity, is guilty before God, but there is a way out, and there is one way. It is one man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. One day, maybe this afternoon, maybe when you die, but someday you're going to have to give an account of your life before God. 
And he has revealed that no human has lived up to the standard of his righteousness due to the fact that we are all under sin. So let me ask you, Today, maybe you're thinking, well, it's okay when I come before him, I already have some excuses prepared. My parents didn't raise me right. The life that God gave you is too hard. I'm, maybe you're thinking I'm not as bad as other people. There are worse people. But Paul says every defense that you have on that last day is going to be silenced by the righteousness of God. But here's the good news. If you put your faith in Jesus today, then he will give you credit for his righteous life. If you put your faith in Christ, then what that means is, is that Jesus died on the cross for the penalty and judgment and wrath that you deserve. If you put your faith in Christ, it means that that Jesus who was raised from the dead declares to you that you too can be raised to newness of spiritual life and will live forever with God as his child. Not an enemy, but as a friend and as a child. So if you haven't done that today, let me encourage you, friend, don't take another step without talking to someone about putting your faith in Christ, how to do that and what that means. Because there is no better place, there is no other place to find salvation on the last day than in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.